This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to episode three of eight of our AI Futures Saturday series on the future of the human experience. Our guest this week is Bronwyn Williams. She's a partner at Flux Trends, a foresight and advisory firm based in South Africa, as well as co-author of The Future Starts Now, published in July of 2021. Bronwyn and I have been in touch on social media for a number of years now, and I tune into her work because her thinking about trends is not merely the two-year-from-now kind of slight differentiations of where products might go or where technology trends might lead us, but the big-picture power dynamics at an international level and the grand transition of humans, brain-computer interface, and artificial intelligence in a longer-term timescale. I think there's very few people who can think in a cogent way about what the future might hold and think beyond slight adjustments to what today's picture looks like. Bronwyn is certainly among them. None of us have a crystal ball, but I think it's useful to be able to provide a lens into the future and consider how we might adapt as folks in business, as folks in government, to a world increasingly molded by artificial intelligence. This series, as I've mentioned a few times here in our two previous episodes, is intended to provide different perspectives, different windows into what human day-to-day life might look like 10, 20 years from now as artificial intelligence becomes vastly more important and more powerful. Bronwyn crisses and crosses into the world of blockchain, as well as leaning into transhumanism, a topic that we share some interest in, and talks a little bit about her perspective on how technology impacts society from living in Africa. Often I'm speaking to folks in the States and we're talking about sort of the broader Western world, if you will, and maybe the dynamics between the West and China. But in Africa, there's a lot of interesting trends and ways that technology is being adopted that are unhindered to some degree by some of the legacy technologies that we've had to go through in quote-unquote more developed nations. And Bronwyn shares some of her perspective on how that might mold future trends in the economy and the future of the human experience, which again is the focus of this series. So I hope you'll enjoy her take. She's the only South African that we've had uh, in this series and, and probably one of the few South Africans we've had on the program in general. So her accent is delightful, as is her mind. I'm grateful to be able to have Bronwyn here with us in this episode, somebody whose perspectives I value greatly and I hope you will as well. This is episode three of eight in our AI Futures series, and this is Bronwyn Williams. So Bronwyn, I'm glad to have you with me here, and and you and I have been in touch for quite some time before finally pulling this interview together, and this seems like the topic to talk about. Before we tee up sort of where the virtual space is taking us, I want to get your perspective. I've seen some of your tweets on this as to what are the forces that are pulling us more into virtual spaces. We're all on Zoom calls now. Video games are more immersive. When you look at what's pulling the human experience into something that's more digital than physical, what are those big forces and trends for you? Well, I suppose you can look at it from a push and a pull perspective. I think in the near term, we're definitely looking from a sort of people being pushed into these spaces by the just general creative constraints of 2020, literally having to work from home during lockdowns. It's forced a lot of people to adapt platforms and adopt two platforms that perhaps they would have been resistant to in the past. And this is particularly older people who might not be comfortable with using virtual environments to interact with, but now feel they have to. And of course, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And if we have to do these things, we can adapt. They're not that terrible at the end of the day. But I think that's a superficial answer. And a more important answer goes back to the, the pull trends that have been pulling society into a much more virtualized space for actually for a very, very long time. 
as more and more our sort of earthly value and the value we place on our lives is hosted online, it makes sense that we follow there with our physical bodies and our time and our attention. I think some of the reasons behind that, if you want to get quite deep into it, is that old concept of the difference between expectation and reality. And at the moment, particularly in the developed world, and I like to speak about it as being developed as an ED, as in kind of finished or complete, there's a lot of hopelessness, particularly now among younger people, about how much impact and how much success they can have in the real world. And it's becoming easier to make a mark for yourself in a virtual or augmented space than it is in the real world. And we have to talk about this honestly. I mean, for most of the developed world, my generation, and I'm a, a millennial, unfortunately, I don't take responsibility for my generation, but a lot of us are the first generation to literally not be able to meet our parents' standard of living. And from a human perspective, if you go back to the Constitution of the United States, that pursuit of life and liberty and happiness yeah, yeah. is about progressing. That's what humans want to do. We want to progress. And if we're unable to progress in the real world, it's very, very tempting for us to escape into a virtual space. And we can see this across all over the world. I suppose the canary, as you like to say, in this particular coal mine would be the hikikomori in Japan, yeah. who have literally given up on real life and jumped into a virtual space where they can live on their own terms and succeed according to a different bunch of dynamics. Yeah. Wow. I, so I like that you're actually touching on this because you've read the piece that I put together. Though Those of you listening, it's danfagella.com slash Japan. I talk about Japan's sort of abandonment of, especially young men, abandonment of achievement in the real world in exchange for kind of a weak fulfillment of needs in virtual spaces. I think, you know, you're touching on the fact that this is really common in the developed world. I also do not take responsibility for millennials. I won't speak overtly ill of them on this podcast. Some of them I like rather fondly, but I think our vices are numerous. That said, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of us graduated right when the big crash happened, you know, and I think that the idea of kind of hopelessness or maybe not having as much to do in the physical space, you know, I can think about a lot of ways that manifests. Some people are going to play multiplayer online games, you know, like the Hikikomori or like, you know, video game addicts in the United States. And they're going to be in these virtual worlds. They're going to have virtual friends and, and things like that. Some of them are, are going to, you know, as, as, a, as a man particularly, you know, if you're not very well accomplished and achieved, you don't have much going for you, maybe you'll get pulled into the kind of the black hole of, you know, the, the pornography space, so to speak, because you don't have much hope for that area of your life and, and you still have needs. There's also, you know, I'm thinking about prominence in the virtual space. I don't know, just tweeting all day and building an account that has a lot of followers because you can do that even if you can't earn $70,000 a year. You know, I'm throwing out some random stuff, but for you, what does that look like? So, so hopelessness in sort of the physical world of kind of becoming accomplished Seeking, I think we'd call this the human need for significance in virtual spaces. Talk about the manifestations. Yeah, exactly. So that, that is definitely a great point because there's different types of currency. And at the end of the day, money is only a proxy for social currency anyway. It's a convenient proxy. It's a, yep. it's a sort of accounting system we can all agree with across the world. But I think just to go back to my previous points, so that's on the sort of developed world space where you see this generation running away from reality from due to a sense of hopelessness. So, so they don't have hope in the real world. So they're going to a space where they can have social currency and social kudos and a sense of significance in a different space. I think the case for the developing world, which I'm part of, is <laughs> coming from South Africa, is a bit different. In fact, I can use the sort of very literal metaphor of South Africa itself as an example here, because there's obviously a lot of external 
immigration happening from my country at the moment due to the economic and political instability. But you kind of got two types of people. You've got people who leave to run away from a situation they can't handle. And then you've got people that go to a better life in a different country. And I think that that is probably a slightly different way to look at why people are escaping into these spaces or going to these spaces. What I see in Africa and in the community around me, the reason people are starting to engage in the virtual space is not actually to escape their environment, even though the environment is probably tougher in real terms compared to young people's yeah. lives in the developed oh, for world. Sure, for sure. But ironically, it is the developed world, the privileged but not quite privileged enough that are running away from, whereas in the developing world, people are going to virtual spaces to build out of a sense of hope and opportunity. So you've kind of got these two pull or push movements going on, going to the space out of hopelessness and going to the space out of hope. And that's, and that's an interesting dynamic to look at whether people are going there to build and create and make new economies or whether people are going there to escape into entertainment and to sort of like a digital soma situation. Yeah. And I've got, I've got all kinds of analogies to riff on with that. Um, in terms of the, you know, the attitudes, I think that there's, there's tremendous truth there. Certainly in the United States, most third and fourth generation Americans like myself have just completely abandoned the idea of the American dream. I haven't abandoned it myself, but you know, but I can understand the reasons, right? I mean, I hate to see disheartenedness. I hate to see weakness, but, but I can understand the reasons, but most people abandon it. But yeah, the, the folks that, you know, come here from, you know, on some academic scholarship from India or Colombia or what have you, just crush all of the third and fourth generation kids who, who really are, you know, they're, they're kind of getting by. They sort of don't want to hurt more as opposed to, you know, active pursuance, a active sort of building of something. Both of these that you're talking about, people who are sort of going into the virtual space for escape and comfort and folks that are going in there with some ambition, both of those, as they start to build and spend more time in there, those are pulls, I guess, the, the pull of escape and the, the pull of ambition. Once more and more of, of these ambitious business endeavors and social endeavors and once more and more of these, you know, comfort folks who are ultimately paying somebody for those comforts, namely the ambitious, once more and more folks are there, doesn't that also create more of a push? In other words, if the place to get this kind of entertainment is clearly best in this virtual space or the, the way to handle this business need is clearly best in this virtual space, now there's a push where it's like, well, I kind of have to. I think about my, my father with Amazon, right? He, you know, five years ago, six years ago, would have been like, oh, I'll never, you know, I, I just go to stores, you know, I don't do all that crazy stuff. But at some point, they have actually everything. And at some point, it's actually like 20% cheaper than in stores. And at some point, it's there the next day. And, and at some point, you're kind of pushed. Like you, you have a life, you only have so much time and you're just going to do it. Do you see the proliferation of both the pleasure seeking and, and the ambitious going into these virtual worlds also creating a bit of that pull dynamic, also creating a push? Oh, yes, absolutely. Eventually, we're going to reach a tipping point where it makes more sense to build your earthly value in the, an unearthly virtual space than in the real space. Because, you know, that's where your, where your heart is, where your treasure lies. Eventually, there's more treasure there. And those two pools are very symbiotic because you need a market that would be your sort of wealthier leisure seekers. And you need builders and makers, which are your more ambitious people going out there to make a living in these new spaces because they literally can't in their physical worlds. And once you reach a critical space, uh, mass, but you really need a good dynamic there between buyers and sellers to create a sustainable market. Once you get to that point, it becomes a lot easier for the next waves to start adopting on these platforms. 
I think the reason why it hasn't taken off yet has been partly technological, partly it's just been very, very disappointing from a user experience. It's been about as fun to buy or trade crypto as it has been to play in virtual reality with people. But I think things are changing. Eventually, it reaches a point where it goes from being early adopted to being mass market. And that tipping point tends to happen actually quite quickly. You just need that critical mass. And we've seen this with social networks. And that's really how I like to think about these virtual yeah. platforms is being a social network, not being a game. So I think that that really is key to think about. Think about it as being a 3D social network. And we used to 2D social networks, your Facebooks, Twitters, Snapchats, all the rest of it have been for a couple of decades. The next one really is this 3D social network. And we do understand that all markets are social networks too. That includes economies themselves. So that's when it becomes quite robust. I want to carry this analogy through because I'm going to have you go a little bit farther into the future here, and I'm really looking forward to that part of exploration with you. But, you know, even Facebook, these quote unquote 2D virtual spaces or 2D social networks, that's a huge part of the dynamic of what building virtual value is, right? I mean, there, there are some people who, you know, outside of an Instagram account are just dead to the world. Right, they're just they're just dead to the entire world, and that's not to say that's a bad person. Right, I'm not judging it by any means. I mean, if you go and crush it on Instagram, like God bless you, as an agnostic, I'm just using it as a phrase. But you know, seriously, that's perfectly fine. But you know, I even think about my own business here. You know, before coronavirus, I would go speak at places. You know, get to see United Nations headquarters and hold a mic. Get to you know go into big corporates, but but really, it's an email list, right? It's a website. It's it's our social channels. I mean, a lot of this is virtual. Even the value of, of the, the firm that I have, I mean, a, a substantial amount of it is virtual. Probably it'll be even more and more virtual moving forward. Many other businesses, it's, it's exactly the same. And people will say, well, I'm not like living in VR. I'm in the real world, man. But it's, you know, if you're running, if you're running a business, you know, I'm in front of screens 12 hours a day. That doesn't mean I'm sucked into them. But, but geez, I mean, outside of, you know, pouring a glass of tea or taking a walk, I mean, you could say I'm in a virtual world. It almost feels like VR or more immersive, full-on virtual experience is just one more step from where the hell we are. I feel like a lot of people don't see it that way, but but you made the analogy to social networks. I feel like, yeah, it is it is analogous. I mean, that's that's the first lily pad to jump on to get across the pond. What do you see as those next steps? Let's paint the picture. You know, I know this is bold and neither of us have a crystal ball, but you know, you look 10 years out and you say, what's a day in the life for a consumer for a business what what's what's gaming like what's learning like what's buying things like what's working together on a team like you know can, can you paint some thoughts as to what this increasing virtualization might look like a decade out well firstly i'd say it's definitely not going to be the same for everyone the future is never equitably distributed, distributed and i think we have yeah. to draw that distinction yeah, yeah. very very clearly i mean like i don't even have to cross the boundaries of my own country to find people that still don't have access to the yep, internet. Yep, and yep, here we are yep. talking about exactly. Sort of yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> if we want to see, I mean, like I think Japan is probably furthest along this line and we've spoken about that too, and that they have a, have a much more digitally connected society and they've severed a lot of the, the social bonds that we still consider very, very key here in South Africa in terms of what a family relationship looks like, how many contact points you have with a human being throughout the course of the day. And we've seen this in 2020 with how different societies have adapted to the online space. And I think what's been very interesting for me from a sort of trend analyst perspective is how wide that divide is between people who've been able to seamlessly hop into the sort of virtual trading, sort of the Zoom economy, as we call it now. It's a digital economy. It's yep. not fully virtual yet because yep, yep. it's still you and me, human beings, yeah. transacting just through a screen and how other people have just been completely left behind. 
So I think the first thing that we're going to see is that divide actually get wider because once you get to a certain point, just like trickle-down economics, it doesn't necessarily trickle all the way down. And that diffusion is not guaranteed that we're going to get everyone sort of to the point where we are now and we are sort of 10 years ahead in the future. Yep, yep. I think that's the first caveat that I have. And I don't think everyone would agree with me on that. But having seen the way this has played out in my corner of the world, I would say that it's going to be more and more difficult for the already left behind to catch up because of the speed of change, you know, because you, you're chasing an ever, ever increasingly speedy tail ahead yeah. of you going down the road. That's the one point. Let's make sure to come back to that, Bronwyn. I appreciate that. So we'll loop back to, you know, when we talk about power at the end of this interview, we'll talk a little bit about that increasing divide as well. But anyway, about the future, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just want to make sure to put an earmark in that one. (laughs) Well, about the future, I think in terms of industries that we're going to definitely not see with us in the same place they are now, I think definitely the education industry led by the U.S. on the side is up for some major changes for very reasonable considerations like pure economics and also because of how we are able to start interacting on a much more digital space. So probably switching from full-on degrees to more of your micro-credential type things, not going to happen overnight, but that's the direction we're pointing in. One of the very big startups in my side of the world would be Get Smarter, who's done exactly that. They've bite-sized, chunked, very premium universities. So your Harvard's, your Oxford's into a digital learning experience instead of a classroom learning experience. So I think that's an early indication of how even these most undisruptable to use that terrible sort of corporate speak word <laughs> industries can change very, very fast as soon as the market is there. I think the next thing to realize is that the the next sort of generation, the next the sort of like the, the people coming up sort of 10 years behind me going into the workspace are already playing in this virtual space. They already have economies, businesses, and social credit that has real-world value in virtual spaces. So the great example there would be like your TikTok communities. And how you can actually go see the sob stories on Bloomberg of all platforms about teenagers who are suddenly not able to earn as much money as they were last week because the United States is going to ban their current platform that they earn their living off. Yeah. Which is, which is horrific for its own sense of, <laughs> sense of use. But from a harbinger of what's to come in the future, you can start to see that you don't need a job. You need a profile. You need social currency to get ahead in the world. And that concept of your social currency being more important than your bank account, because essentially it becomes the same thing, those sort of those, those two yeah. converge very nicely, is where we're going from both a Western and an Eastern perspective. So whether you're looking at sort of government-orientated social credit stores coming from the East, and it's not just China anymore. I mean, India's doing it, parts of Africa are doing it. You've got a huge swing on that Eastern worldview of social credit scores to rule your life on that side. On the other hand, you've got the Western vision, which is not all that different where social currency still buys you goods and services in the real world, but it's social currency built on social networks that are essentially established by some sort of free market organization that you voluntarily connect to. But what we see there is the sunk costs in any of these credit systems. Just like there's sunk costs in using fiat currency, like actual cash, there's sunk costs in building that credit. And I think that what we've seen over the last, it's probably only in the last really three to five years, where we started seeing social credit being like the sort of likes or the number of followers you got on your social platforms being translated directly into social credit. And that would be actually currency that you can trade in exchange for goods and services. You can monetize that popularity that you've got. And there's many more options and more platforms to do that on. But whichever platform you pick, it becomes 
almost like choosing what country you're going to live in because you become dependent on the rules of that platform for your success in life going forward. So I think that's, that's an interesting dynamic to watch unfold over the next 10 years. Those sort of boundaries and geographies that we tie ourselves to are not necessarily two-dimensional or terrestrial anymore. They're more yeah. sort of three-dimensional, <laughs> sort of the communities that we invest ourselves in in our formative years and how important that is to us. I mean, we know this from the real world in economic sense too. Wherever you sort of pay your pension or RA money into over your life, you kind of sunk costs. So the sunk costs of picking the right platform become very, very interesting. And, and again, you can see this today, you know, somebody who lives in uh, Peru and has a really popular cooking Instagram feed or something like that, right? About like recipes or what travel or whatever the heck the topic is. There's a bajillion of them. It might be more important that they're on Instagram that they're in Peru. I mean, maybe the background, you know, the views are going to be great, but if they move to Switzerland, the views are also going to be great. And, you know, they, uh, they can cook the same darn recipes or, or something. So where you're kind of setting your roots will increasingly be a choice of platforms versus a choice of geographies as a more important factor. We're seeing more and more companies working remote. So the same thing with your job prospects. Yeah. That is indeed an important dynamic I think people should be thinking about. I wonder you know, if you have thoughts on sort of a day in the life, how will we spend more time in virtual spaces? I think a lot of people, what they do is they look forward and they say, oh man, 10 years from now, well, geez, I mean, I'll probably still be using my iPhone a lot. You know, I'll probably be on my laptop for work. Maybe I'll be working remote more. And for me, I, I would actually posit that the changes are much different than, oh, I'll work on my laptop more and I'll still be using my <laughs> iPhone. I, I suspect we'll be more immersively enmeshed with virtual in one way or another, whether we're wearing goggles or augmented reality or what have you. Do you have thoughts about that? I, I've got oodles, but and maybe I'll ping a couple yeah. off you, but I'd love your thoughts on how we will just be more enmeshed living life. Yeah, well, the screens are going to go away. The screens are sort of a new toy. You know, we've only had them for, what, 20 years now? And they have been getting smaller and they're going to disappear. At the moment, we connect to the internet through a device. We connect to each other through a little black square. That's not going to be around forever. Absolutely not. The devices, the way we connect is going to become more natural, actually more humans. As much as we're going to be doing more inhuman things and inhuman spaces, the way we connect to technology will become and feel to be more natural in a physical sense. Now, from a mental sense, of course, we could be opening up a whole lot of different challenges and how we're going to be messing around with our very biological yeah. sort of evolved brains. <laughs> yeah. But that's probably a slightly different conversation. But I definitely see technology becoming more, more intuitive. So more tactile based, more auditory based, more natural ways of communicating with it because it's very unnatural even to type or to use a screen. Yep. These are never going to stick around forever for the rest of humanity at all. So the internet will become more like the sort of Ethernet sort of all around us. It already is connecting everywhere. Look at the sort of Starlink satellites and all the rest of it. There's not much we have to do from a device perspective to be connecting in a ways that actually seem invisible to us. So I know that like, I don't want to talk about things like Google Glasses, which seem very, very cheesy and like, you know, they've been hackneyed yeah, to death. Yeah, yeah. But they're already a start, they're already more natural way of connecting with screens than actually firing up a little black square and turning it on and carrying a, a separate device with us. Even seeing the adoption of smart watches, which is in my part of the world, probably only caught on in the last two years and how quickly they've gone from like the one guy that works in accounts that's a complete Pete sort of uber nerd had one, you know, yeah, like yeah. three years ago. Now everyone has one and how comfortable we get 
with omnipresent technology because that's the other catch from a sort of social liberty perspective is that with a device is as artificial as it is that black square it is separate from us so we can put it away if we have to whereas as the technology becomes closer and closer to us we don't even notice that it is always on and always around us and in essence at that point we are living in a four-dimensional world even if we're not consciously thinking about it it's it's all around us all the time and i think that for me the sort of the wake-up call there was when you started seeing amazon alexas and google homes getting everywhere and people talking to the internet like it's a friend and when you've got children that have a relationship with this sort of inanimate object in their houses so that is that is a, a more key point as to the direction that we're heading in, where connecting to the virtual world isn't going online, it's sort of being online all the time. And even now, we talk about digital, but that's an old-fashioned word. The next thing is just being connected. It's just part of the social experience. That's the way we headed. Yeah, well, the, I, the idea of internet to sort of Ethernet, you know, the, the, the AE kind of like Greek, uh, I don't know exactly the, the origin of that, that symbol there. But, but I, I like that notion. I, I remember an interview that I conducted some seven long years ago. Almost nobody listened to the podcast now as a listener way back in the old days. But I remember an interview with a researcher who had explained that we left the jungle where everything was alive to go to very controlled spaces. And now we're going to be entering a new jungle where everything is alive all the time again. You mentioned screens going away. You talked about Alexa, to some degree, Siri, I, I suspect, is sort of part of the mix. You know, Google Glass didn't work out, but the idea is still a strong idea, which is to say, you know, by eye movements and by voice commands, we'll just have virtual value overlaid over the physical world. When you talk about screens going away and you talk about this always-on-ness where else might that manifest? What are some instances of what a day in the life might look like where we don't have a screen? Are we talking about brain-computer interface? I mean, that might be a little longer than 10 years, but maybe maybe you are kind of hinting at that. Are we talking about a glass-like device? Are we just talking about, I think a lot of people say, oh, 10 years, how are keyboards going to be replaced? I don't understand that. What are your thoughts on this screens going away idea? What does it look like? As someone who is trained in marketing, I'm not going to try and define what the actual object is going to look like because the market will dictate what works. I think it what's sure important will. to notice is that technology is already there for touch-based computing, using like micro devices that can pick up basically through as a projector that you can have like type in the air or swipe like you want to sort of CSI from the early 2000s episodes. That technology is there. I probably see that it's probably going to start auditory first. So like the whole AirPods thing can become more smart AirPods and start communicating directly. So it's not in your brain, but it's in your ear. I yeah, would say yeah. that's probably going to happen before the glasses catch on, but I think glasses are going to come back. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't reject that concept yet. Just like we didn't, we shouldn't have rejected the sort of digital watch. I mean, they're still with us and they were laughed at in the eighties. You know, they had to come back a few times before they, yeah. before they caught on there. But, um, in terms of the day in our life, I think that yes, we will be communicating more constantly with technology in a personal space. I think probably something auditory to start with. From a social perspective, I think that basically we've already got to the point of having a global Wi-Fi curtain, like we spoke about previously, like a sort of iron curtain where people are trapped behind one side and the other. I think from a sort of state surveillance point of view, we're going to be completely accustomed to living living under a magnifying glass at pretty much all times. I think that 2020s have accelerated social acceptance of these things. It horrifies me, but... When we live in democracies, democracies will vote for this. People do tend to err on the side of security over freedom, if that can also guarantee them things like universal basic income, which comes with it. 
where the gilded cage comes with good food <laughs> and protection in exchange for your liberty. So I know that's a bit of a bugbear. It's probably not a, too much interest for your particular audience who wants to know more about the, the technology side. But I think from the tech side, it becomes very, very interesting because that Wi-Fi net is a sort of completely surrounding Ethernet, once again, that is connecting all of us, not through sort of brain chips in our brains, but just through complete and total surveillance. And I suppose surveillance sounds quite, quite bad, but if you're thinking about a sort of a paternalistic, benevolent sort of, you know, yeah, China sense, state yeah. that's looking after us like the big guy in the sky, you can see how people might be, might be more sort of okay with it. And just looking at how quickly and how much demand there has been for things like contact tracing apps and <laughs> that's just like yeah, the last sort of, yeah. that was, that was for me the last hurdle. Well, we there now. That's going to happen. So I think it's very unlikely that that's not going to happen at this point. We'll never say never. And in terms of actually getting around and our phys- what we do with our physical bodies, as much as we'll probably spend more time connected to our avatars, I don't even want to say avatars. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg's idea of having an avatar that looks like you, that plays for you in space is what we're really looking at. It's more a case of reality all around us becomes overlaid with unreality rather than being a place we go to yeah, as I said earlier yeah, yeah, it's around yeah. us rather than something you go to I think in terms of commuting and work and future of work I think we're going back to the office guys and I think that for many reasons I think that for control reasons I think that for security reasons once again I mean just talking about South Africa here if you want someone to work remotely at their house you are responsible for their health and safety in their own house. So if they haven't, like, if they've got an electrical fault and their house burns down while they're working, that's your fault as the employer. Why would you want to take on that risk? Yeah, that, 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 that's, <laughs> you know, I don't like think that's, that's a... the case in the United States <laughs> at all. I mean, so for South African purposes, <laughs> I think I would want everybody in the office. I think we are going back to commuting, maybe not back to the, to the office that we had before where you had your giant sort of ivory tower that everyone arrives at 8 in the morning and leaves later. I think the co-working idea was probably an idea that <laughs> sort of came to the mainstream, which is the worst possible time in the world. Yeah. But that is this, the future of the workspace. People are more productive with energy around them. Psychologists can tell you this. Any manager can tell you this. It's easier to manage a bunch of people and to get them fired up about something face-to-face than it is with any amount of virtual reality conferencing and, you know, team Zoom guitar playing sessions. From a product- productivity point of view, there's a medium to be found between that so i don't think the, the sort of working space is going away altogether probably will be a bit more flexible once again a trend that's been going on for quite a long time but 10 years is not enough time to undo all of that from a commuting perspective i think we're going to go back to the sort of shared non-ownership models as much as your your e-hailing companies are going to struggle with the new sort of unionization that's going to be a big challenge over the next few years we're not going to go back to private ownership of different vehicles nor will we suddenly be able to magic up in 10 years new mass transport routes. Here, I do subscribe quite a lot to the Peter Thiel view of the world, that progress has literally slowed down, and that our commuter time since I've been born have only got longer, not shorter. And I don't think we're going to reverse that decline in real productivity. So to summarize my answer to your question, I think we're going to see vast increases in speed and in power of the virtual world but a continued decline in progress in the real world in terms of our physical bodies and where we connect and move around spaces and cities. That's curious because I, I suspect some folks will disagree with that, but I understand your yeah. logic and I, and I see where you're, I see where you're headed and I can see the validity of the kind of where you're, I guess, coming from there to sort of build on this. You know, you've talked about some of the dynamics that'll happen moving forward. That'll kind of pull us into these virtual worlds, what that might look like. 
where do you see artificial intelligence playing a role there? You know, as, as we're getting pulled in, AI might be part of what pulls us in. It might be part of what keeps us there. It might be part of what adds value to those, those new digital ecosystems or, or the business models. Any high-level thoughts around AI's role in this vacuum that's taking us into the virtual yeah. world? I think my biggest point there would be that increasingly we are going to outsource our responsibility and decision-making to artificial intelligence. That probably sounds like quite a trite answer, but I think that it also touches on a lot of the things I was speaking about earlier in terms of politics and the trade-off between sort of privacy and freedom and security and the way we interact in offices that we require someone to look after us and what I was speaking about with contract tracing apps. People don't want responsibility in a complicated world. There is a massive demand with a very disappointed generation, like we opened this conversation with, to outsource responsibility for our decisions to somebody or something else. This is not just because it's difficult to make decisions, but it's also because it's difficult to live with the consequences of your decisions if you are only responsible to yourself for how your life turned out. There is a huge incentive, even looking at 2020 and how the world responded to COVID and all this, to say, government, make the decision on my behalf. And when it messes up from a health or economic perspective, I've got someone to blame. I don't have to look to myself as to why things went wrong for myself. And that's the incentive as to why people will be happy to outsource more decisions to artificial intelligence, especially as it becomes more personalized. That probably sounds quite judgmental, but that's not what I was going for. The, the real thing is it's down to who should I date instead of me swiping left and right on Tinder or Grindr or whatever my app choice is. Yeah, yeah. I can say, find me the best match. And then it's not my fault if it doesn't work out. You know, it was a system. Huh. Same with what job should I do? Where should I live? A lot of those personal decisions will be outsourced, but at the same time, a lot of corporate decisions will be outsourced. And that's actually where it started. I think the, the, the sort of light bulb moment for me was the Vital at Knowledge Ventures app thing in Japan, where they started outsourcing their, their mergers and acquisition choices to an artificially intelligent bot instead of getting human board members to make those massive multi-billion dollar decisions. You outsource the decision to a bot. If it, if it blows up in your face, the corporates all get keep their bonuses because, you know, we listen to the advice of the machine, right? So I think there's a massive shift of responsibility towards artificial intelligence and from a governance perspective too. I mean, looking at what's happening even in the UK with predictive policing at the moment, it should be a wake-up call for all of us. Just outsourcing tough decisions to an artificial entity so that we don't have to worry about that stuff. A couple things. So I, mm. I certainly think that part of the pull towards quote-unquote outsourcing is the abdication of being responsible when the result occurs. I think there's there's certainly an appeal there. Although there's a lot of lashback around that idea in the AI world. I mean, to the point where I actually consider a lot of it to be preemptive and bloviated. In other words, like, oh, how will companies be responsible for the decisions of their AI, even when it's like the most banal, just obscenely boring crap in the universe? Like, like how do we find legal documents with natural language processing search that have this kind of clause? It's like, there's no racial bias in that device. But on the other hand, I, I don't say that in total jest here. I think that it's potentially a good thing that, that we're thinking seriously about the ethical considerations and the bias considerations of these systems before they come into being. I think on the aggregate, that's probably good. I decry its excesses and unfounded accusations, but I commend the fact that it exists even before the concerns exist on some level. So I feel like abdication is, is real. I feel like there will be pushback against total abdication, particularly if it can lead to real deal unfairness. And that, you know that's a good thing. Two other forces, though. 
convenience feels big. So yeah. I would abdicate the refilling of my refrigerator without thinking about it with no problem whatsoever because it would just be convenient. Whenever something is below whatever threshold, just hit my cart, you know, just hit it. Like I know what the prices are. So long as it, if it's 20% more than usual, don't hit my cart. But if it's, if it's within range, hit my cart. I would advocate that without question. There's also sort of an advantage side to this. So presumably the M&A decision that you had talked about, you might be right that the board just wants to keep their bonuses. There also might be actual tangible better M&A decisions being made by said system than by the human team. So there's advantage, there's convenience, and there's also abdication. It feels like all of those might pull us to say, okay, machine, you take the next step. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, on the, on the convenience piece, I think I've spoken about that quite a few times before in the talks that I've given. The convenience is the first run towards outsourcing responsibility. You start with small things. So like the responsibility of having to remember eggs or to yeah, refill the batteries yeah, or whatever yeah. the case is. And it ratchets up to more important responsibilities you abdicate. And then from the, the other point you're making in terms of the actual advantage point, I think it also comes from like, you know, there's, there's a bit of a responsibility angle there too. But in terms of that advantage, I think looking much further down the line, it opens up a very interesting competitive equilibrium conversation that I'm quite fascinated by having been trained in economics and all the rest of it. Not a perfectly equitable market in perfect equilibrium between supply and demand when everything matches perfectly. There's no profit for anyone, right? That, that's, that's what a perfectly competitive market is. It's when all the margin is being sucked yeah, out of the market yeah. and the, the buy and sell price is perfect. And if you think about human markets, if all of our decisions were outsourced, you would, you, you could theoretically, and I'm not saying it would happen in principle, get to that perfect equilibrium where there's no profit left for anyone. And that's the sort of, the, the sort of AI sort of, <laughs> not dystopia, but almost a utopia. That's like perfect communism, right? No, no profits for everyone. Supply meets demand. Everything is equitable. But coming back to your advantage question, it's only an advantage as long as your AI is smarter than the next guy's AI. Otherwise, all it does is suck margin out of the market. So for me, from a marketing econ's perspective, margin going forward is in the human sort of more irrational side of the decision making. That's where your margin comes from, not actually from your perfect machine who is seeking to extract all the value from that market. It's a bit of an interesting conversation, but I think that it's worth considering from a corporate perspective if you are trying to, to play the AI game for advantage. I think Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, I mean, it was written quite a, quite a while ago, really spoke to that about how when you optimize to that, you're optimizing to literally a winner takes all and the difference between winning and losing is having a slightly faster internet connection to the next guy. So I would, I would put a caution on that if you're thinking to play that game. Yeah. An interesting dynamic there. A lot just came to mind for me. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, what would I advocate? Well, you know, I'd advocate silly things I don't like to spend my time on, like, you know, reordering basics for, for my house or uh, even like, I don't know, maybe maybe even ordering when I need somebody to clean the house or so, you know, whatever the case, just some some threshold number where I'm willing to spend. But I could also imagine an even farther future. You're talking about squeezing margin and you got me thinking. I'm thinking, okay, well, what if instead of it being Amazon that automatically stocks my fridge, that doesn't sound like a good idea. It, instead, what if it's my own sort of self-interest bot, which is going to look on Amazon, but is also going to look on 18 other different e-commerce 
spaces and maybe even will like have some means of negotiating with them or something. I, I'm not really sure. It might just be picking a lowest price. It might be communicating. It might be searching for discount codes on every single corner of the freaking web and, and plugging them in automatically for me, whatever the case may be. But I can imagine that being a, a margin evaporation play. If everybody's every <laughs> purchase is hyper optimized, then whoa, where's the grocery money come from? Although, yeah, so I, I see that. The other thing, so I, I like that idea a lot, Bronwyn. Um, the other thing I see, you talked about the irrationality, so to speak. Man, I can see AI being used to encourage all sorts of irrationality already. I can imagine, so, you know, games like World of Warcraft or some of these mobile games, actually, well, let's use mobile gaming right away. We, we have an episode with a company called Scopely on the podcast. This might have been four years ago. They're now a unicorn, you know, billion-dollar company, raised a tremendous sum of money. They've got people spending $10,000 a month on mobile games. Like, I'm not even joking. That That's a real thing. And so the way that they can proxy out who the whales are and constantly encourage engagement, we might say, you and I might say that's irrational. Now, I, I can't speak for the person spending that kind of money, but you and I might say that's irrational. AI, I think, is being used for both, if I'm not mistaken. AI is basically being used to arbitrage our own irrationality. I know I've, I've been criticized for using the word irrationality. So you can call it the sort of human magic or the human mace or just like what, what makes us imperfect beings, you know, the biological side of our brain. Yeah, taking advantage of the monkey suit. Let's just call it that. Of the monkey suit. Yes, exactly. But I, I think irrational gets the points across quickest. I mean, if you want to put it that way. But of course, chasing chasing love or value or happiness is in a sense rational, but it's it's fulfilling an irrational need or, yeah. or a very human need. So that's where the margin comes from in the future. It comes from humans. Now, where it gets, and that's exactly what you're talking about, sort of a bot arbitraging human nature against us to extract as much value from us as possible. However, if I have my own personal bot that I've set up to protect me from being irrational, then you've got bots fighting with bots. And once again, you sort of get into that sort of zero-sum game. I think what's very interesting there is with that whole GTP3 thing that's been going on, yep, on yep. around recently. And what struck me amazingly is that I, as someone who's come from a marketing background, I've been horrified by the rise of content marketing. That's what's like got, got me to quit doing anything to do with marketing and focus huh. on economics where people are even slightly sane. Because content marketing is ridiculous. You're basically using human brains to optimize for bots, right? So that you get more clicks and more eyeballs on your website, putting those keywords in so you get the bots to like you. Now suddenly you've got sort of GPT-3 coming on board and you've got basically a bot that's going to write for a bot, which is basically, it's a tail-eating snake. It's a little recursive loop that goes on there. Sort of cut the humans out of the system and you've just got bots optimizing, writing content for bots to search for bots. Yeah. And that's what happens. That's a great analogy for what happens when we start trading bots against bots or trading avatars against avatars. And when everyone is outsourcing their decisions to machines, you very quickly run into that sort of dead-end, dry equilibrium. And the only way to re-inject value into that system is to appeal once again to the irrational human and to sort of coax us back into the world with new shiny things that they can exploit our sort of mystical nature, that sort of soul that makes us human beings yeah, that make yeah. us do strange things that bots don't understand. And I suppose if you want to get really philosophical, that's when you can start bringing in the whole sort of future of super intelligence and how it relates to us human beings. Because would a super intelligence ever develop its own sort of irrational soul. And if it couldn't, we would always be the spanner in the work. We would always be the monkey throwing the dart into the stock market, causing that whole perfect system to come down. Because that's the point. If there's just one human trading on a stock market that's being otherwise entirely traded by bots, it becomes an unpredictable, chaotic system once again, because we are that strange. 
Yeah, I, I think I think systems, if we get a long enough time horizon, I suspect the nuances, we might not use the word soul, but the, the nuanced decision making and the convolution of motives of, of a superintelligence would be as if not astronomically more complicated than ours. But we'll have to see if we can get there. I, I want to, and I, I hope we've got a, another minute or two, Bronwyn, I want to wrap up on one topic that I realized I didn't get to yet and we're, we're just coming up on time, is, is around how these dynamics influence power. So maybe we can end on this. I want to respect your time, but I, I really want to explore this. You and I have a lot of uh, great online conversations about the, the future big game of international governance of AI and, and kind of economic power. When you think about this, this whole virtualization of the world, these platforms that are virtual that maybe become more important than the geographies that you're in, you think about how AI is optimizing them to you know, take advantage of you know, some rational forces and to, to also maybe coax out some irrational forces to get some spending going or whatever. How do you fundamentally see sort of the game of power changing? You can t- take this from a government standpoint. You can take this from um, an economics and a business standpoint, a monopoly standpoint. What are the big things you think should mm. be on people's radar? Well, I think to start the conversation, you could talk about like geopolitics used to be based on geography. Like you had flat borders between different countries and you defended your border. And if you were cared about power, you tried to expand that border. Because there was always another sort of board on the other end of the border that you have to keep on sort of suppressing or converting yeah. in order to maintain your power. Because that's the whole purpose of government, right? So ultimately, government is, uh, or power is, a power takes all game. To win the game, you have to win the entire market. You can't leave anyone out. Otherwise, you've always got a risk in your system. And that's a sort of basic thinking behind just sort of very old school power and geopolitics dynamics. No one's quite built the perfect one world empire, but that certainly hasn't stopped anyone from trying, even up to this very day. However, things have become more complicated because when you start layering a virtual world on top of our real world, and it's literally overlaid everywhere in every dimension, you don't just have sort of 2D geopolitics, you've kind of got 4D geopolitics. You've got this concept of the spaces that people occupy in the virtual realm and in the physical realm and in the sort of trade routes realm, and they can all be three different borders drawn. So if you take something even as simple as like your TikTok, for example, you might be an American citizen within the American borders, but you're not allowed to use an app or you are using an app that your government banned. So suddenly you're playing on two different fields over there. And then you've got who owns the communication channel to go with that. But that's just a sort of analogy to think about how complicated power is and who controls which people and who controls what money, because increasingly these virtual platforms have their own currencies. So you're 2D geopolitics, your literal borders on the ground, determine what fiat money you use in that system. In the virtual space, those currencies cross different borders. The borders are the different platforms that different gamers would play in. Some of them can interconnect, some of them can't. So even if you're talking about things like your cryptocurrencies, some of them are compatible and some of them are not compatible. So you've got these different worlds being overlaid. But what they all have in common is that in the virtual space, Increasingly, instead of talking about countries, you're talking then about platforms or the platformification of the world, like I like to speak about, because the platform becomes the geography, the boundaries, the borders within which whatever treasure you are building is stored. So if you're a player, that's where you pay your rent in, in exchange for sort of buying gaming tokens or whatever virtual products you're into. If you're a business, you pay a rent to the platform to set up your virtual business. So if you want to trade interior design services on Animal Farm, or if you want to trade concerts on Fortnite, you pay a rent to those different virtual platforms. And you are then beholding to that platform. So much like the Bible spoke about, don't build your house upon the sand, 
my advice always is don't build your business upon a platform unless you're very sure <laughs> that it's going to be there for a while because what any platform gives, that platform can take, take away. away. That platform yeah. can change the rules yeah, of the yeah. game overnight. Yeah. They can increase your rent. They can increase how much you have to pay to host your business on that platform. They can increase the exchange rate, like the stock market change on Animal Farm and cause some people to literally kill themselves over the financial, the real world financial devastation that playing a virtual stock market caused their real life. Ouch. And that's just the first layer of how sort of precarious these systems are. Because what we increasingly see now is nested platforms. So maybe you've built your business on, say, Fortnite, but Fortnite is hosted on the iOS platform. So if iOS changes its terms and conditions, as is what happened in 2020, suddenly that whole sort of set of nesting dolls, everyone gets impacted. And the further down you are in the food chain, the more vulnerable you are to all these platforms within platforms within platforms that are being hosted. And just that final layer of complexity is going right back to 2G ge geopolitics and the literal laws of the physical land that you live in. So it's becoming very, very complicated and also very, very precarious for the little guy to start playing in these systems. And what we have to realize is in the platform space, whether you're talking about virtual worlds or whether you're talking about your big tech giants in the sort of more digital realm, never mind the virtual realm, like you're just your, your social networks that yeah, you're familiar yeah. with or your Amazon type platforms. Those platforms are, they're, they're not guaranteed <laughs> to, to be around for any amount True. of time. But not only that, the more important thing there is that it's very much a winner-takes-all environment because platforms, coming back to what we were speaking about earlier, can also be considered to be social networks of a sort. There are network effect platforms yep. which favor the large and don't favor the small. So if you want to look at it from an economic perspective, it's going back almost to sort of like your Adam Smith Wealth of Nations time in that increasingly all of us are paying rents and tolls to increasingly few very big platform hands. That's not to say that That's platforms true. can't be defeated, just like nations can be defeated. They can be coups, they can be takeovers, they can be marauding hordes that change the borders, but they are essentially need to be viewed as digital empires of the sort of invisible empire that's around us in our real world. But we increasingly have to navigate our, our ways between those two worlds, the real world and that virtual platform world. It's increasingly going to be around us, never mind a place you go to. Yeah. And do you see, I mean, so I would predict that there would be a wrestling match so that that all present virtual space, the, the always on you know, space where, you know, I look, I can look through a virtual window in my house and I can look into my friend Jake's house if he has his settings turned to that and I can wave at him and, you know, while I'm brushing my teeth or something in the morning and then I have all my settings for my work that's up in front of me while I'm just walking around and I can kind of check my email just out of the corner of my eye. Whatever the future of this real immersion looks like, it would seem like as much of that as you can own, the better, right? Wh whoever owns what people wake up and go to sleep in just wins. It just feels like that's winning. Yeah. So winning is you own the world from when they wake up until they go to bed. The only real player in that game to that degree of grandeur and, and, and enmeshment kind of totality is the Chinese Communist Party, as far as I can tell. I mean, you know, Facebook might try to get as far there as they can. I'm not calling them bad. I'm just calling them, you know, they, they have their own, you know, every business is going to try to, you know, rule the world. Facebook will take a shot at it. You know, maybe Google will take a shot at it if they get glasses back up. You know, Amazon would sure like you to do all your shopping. I don't know if they're going to become where you want to chat with your friends or whatever. But it, it, it feels like eventually there will be a tremendous amount of power wielded by 
you know, who gets the most airtime and human attention? So whose universe do people breathe the most breaths in, in their waking existence? Do you see that heating up mostly just in places like China where that total domination is going to be viable? Or do you see that same dynamic coming out to more democratic nations too? I would definitely say both. I think that if you want to compare it to geopolitics, you've got to go back quite a far way in time. So almost to the time when the whole world hadn't been discovered yet, where people were still sort of bumping into different empires next yeah, door to them. Yeah. Because this game has been played on different planes. You've got the geopolitical game, which we're starting to see actually come to real fruition with like the trade wars we're seeing and the banning of different people's apps and the splinter net and the firewalls going up as governments start to realize that there is actually a power game being played in a virtual sphere, not just on the physical sphere. So that's the one game that's going to settle, but that's only the one dimension. The other dimension is happening in that virtual space. At the moment, the virtual space essentially operates outside of those geopolitical boundaries. I mean, this is why you've got protesters like Joshua Wong in Hong Kong who are able to run protests on Animal Farm. You know, like even though he's living in a country that he's not allowed to do that in the yeah, virtual space, yeah. he can get away with it. Yep. So he's a digital citizen in a free world, but he's a physical citizen in an unfree world, for example. Yep. And we haven't necessarily seen those two merge yet. So I think that we're going to see battles playing out on two in two realms. One in the virtual space as virtual kingdom competes against virtual kingdom for citizens. And this is an attention free market game. This is the same battle we saw between Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and, and everyone else it's competing for your attention, getting someone to settle in your home. And that's heating up right now. We can see the mergers and acquisitions that are happening with Facebook, with Apple, with a lot of those big companies that are making big plays to own a bit more 3D part of our attention, not just our digital 2D screen based attention. So we're going to see that game settle. And we'll see some kings and emperors come out of that space. But at the same time, we're going to see the lines being drawn on the physical space as physical governments start to try and govern that virtual space, which is difficult, but not impossible. And I can say that if you look at what's happened in the crypto market, which is probably something we haven't spoken about, which is yeah. also worth speaking about because there's a different empire on a different plane that's also playing out in our real world right now as people are trying to get build essentially a currency-based social network to get critical mass so they can build a bunch of digital citizens in terms of the money space. And once those three sort of planes are settled and we see where the, where the physical lines are, where the different sort of kingdoms in the digital space are and the different kingdoms in that sort of crypto digital currency space are, then we will start to see vertical integration as, say, for example, a China sort of takes over a virtual empire and claims it for itself and then takes over a currency, a digital currency empire and builds it for itself. And when those three click together, you've got the physical land territory because let's be honest, we are still warm-blooded bodies. By the time we turn into sugar cubes, it's past our sort of natural yeah. lifespan. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. a bit too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To talk. So you've got to own the physical space that contains the physical body because that's how you control through fear and of pain and hunger, but that, that those are the basic human needs, yep, right? Yep, yep. Then you've got to contain the virtual space, which is where our minds live. And then you've also, or, and that's where the attention is going to live. So that, that physical government will eventually have to merge or be subsumed by who actually ends up owning it is yeah, up for grabs, but yeah. you have to own all three layers. And the other layer is, of course, the currency layer. And that's vitally important from a power perspective because this is how government works. Sort of the taxation system is both the welfare and the warfare state. 
the one funds all the things you need to get buy into your system, all the nice things like welfare and security and the padding for that gilded cage that we all live in. But you also need a forced collection of that value from people. And that comes through from the sort of taxation side of the system. So you have to control money, space, and attention in the future if you want to be a future emperor, which is like the difference between playing chess and playing Go. So that's, yeah. that's how geopolitics is going to play out. It's only just beginning, and I don't think anyone other than China has thought about all three layers. I will, I will concur with that last thought. I like the three-layered idea. <laughs> I, I think probably a lot of people are going to have nightmares from this episode, but... <laughs> maybe they maybe they should, Bronwyn. Maybe they should. Yeah, lots to think about in terms of what real ownership of the virtual space is going to look like. I mean, I hope the free world figures out how to balance these, right? If if you if you just if you read if you read enough Confucius as an emperor would read it, not as a free person would yes. read it, but it, then the playbook's there. But you know, if you like Pericles a lot and you like that kind of separation, dispersion of power, and whatnot. Geez, it's it's hard to figure out how those puzzle pieces are going to come together with any semblance of harmony. We're going to have to learn it the hard way, I guess. I suppose on a slightly more positive note, there's no reason why you're going to end up with one power that owns all three layers at the same time. We're probably still going to see a patchwork just like we see in the real world. As I said, on the, on the physical terrestrial plane, we have not achieved a perfect empire yet. There have always been some marauding hordes or barbarians at the gates. And I see no reason why we won't have those same outposts in different configurations going forward. It's just going to be more complicated because you're playing a game across different boards. It's not, it's not simple chess anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, the prize, the prize, that ultimate prize is huge. The world as the ultimate prize. Yeah, we'll see if one, <laughs> when AGI comes about, we'll see if, uh, if there's still going to be room for more than one. But that's yeah. farther and probably for another series. Bronwyn, this was a great time. I appreciate you going a little bit into overtime with me and talking about the power game. It's a real pleasure to be able to catch up in person here. Sure thing. Thank you. So that wraps up episode three of eight in this AI future series focused on the future of the human experience. Over the course of the next five Saturdays, we're going to be exploring more additional perspectives on how life might change as AI becomes astronomically more powerful. Some of our next few episodes are going to have to deal with some of the ethical, privacy, and security considerations of a world more and more permeated by AI. What does that mean for rights, and how do governments and businesses potentially have to adapt as some of the topics that are now floating in AI ethics in more of a theoretical sense actually have to hit the ground running as these technologies become more powerful. So I hope you'll enjoy some of the future episodes as well. If you are here for AI use cases, trends, and return on investment, our normal business editorial topics, you'll be delighted to know that on Tuesday, we're right back into our normal rigmarole of artificial intelligence in business. So be sure to join us for Tuesday. And otherwise, if you remain interested in this series about the future, and you're interested in painting a better picture in your own mind as to some of the grand trends that we're all sort of a part of here as technology innovators and catalysts, then be sure to stay tuned next Saturday for episode four of eight of our AI future series on the future of human potential. That's all for now. I look forward to catching you on the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.